Hey everyone, this is Josh McPherson, lead pastor of Grace City Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Whether you're a longtime Christian or just starting to ask questions about Jesus, I'm really glad you're here. I hope this message challenges you to think hard and moves you to respond in such a way that results in more freedom and purpose in your life. Enjoy the message. Here's the title of my sermon, Figure It Out Faster. Figure it out faster. My buddy Joe Schlegel was a worship leader for a huge, with a huge church, and, and they had tens of thousands of people watching online and tens of thousands of people broadcasting to multiple campuses, and he was the worship leader. And he had his in-ear monitors in, and they were playing a song, and somehow the in-ear monitors disconnected from his drummer, and his drummer was playing a different beat. And everyone in the entire house knew that the drummer was offbeat except for the drummer. And so Joe was singing, and he was trying to smile, and he was trying to keep it all together. And everyone knew the drummer was offbeat, and, and Joe could not figure out how to get him on the beat. And so, <laughs> so Joe's playing, and it's just, it's just this train wreck. You know, the, the drummer is off in the beat, and no one can clap, but it's just terrible, terrible. And, and, and he glances over, and the drummer had his head down. And was just grooving, eyes closed, just in his own little world, grooving. And so Joe thought, this is a disaster. There are tens and tens and tens of thousands of people watching this. I, I, I got to get him on rhythm. And so Joe knew where the lights were he, because he was head of production. He had 48 people on staff full time in the worship department. We have one and a half. <laughs> so this massive team, he knew where the cameras were. And, and so he's, he's looking up at the screen, and there's a huge screen of him up here and a huge screen of him up here, and he's watching him. And as soon as they cut away, he would turn around and yell to the drummer, figure it out faster. And he's trying to yell over the sound of the band. And so he's playing, figure it out faster. He does it about five times, and finally the drummer looks up like, <gasps> Sinked in, they got back on track, and the train didn't explode in a gigantic uh, uh, pile of, of messy notes. The point being, he would tell a story, we would laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. And so that's just kind of become a line. It's like, hey, figure it out faster. The title of my sermon today is Figure It Out Faster because the church is largely, I think, in many ways out of step with the groove of the Spirit in relationship to the cultural moment we are in. And I think one of the words that the Spirit of God would give to his church is gently but firmly, you need to figure it out faster. You need to figure it out faster in relationship to obeying me and following me and being the church in the midst of very quickly shifting cultural tides and trends that the church has not yet figured out how to adjust to. And I know this because I talk to many, many pastors and I listen to them talking and I think, what are you talking about? Or why aren't you talking about X, Y, Z? And so th this is, th I'm going to verbal process a little bit with us together tonight. And it's in, in an attempt to help bring all of us along in thinking biblically about it, what it means and what it would look like to live faithfully and following Jesus in these days. Because these days they are a changing. These days they are a changing. And I think that the roadmap for getting out of the woods in these days is the book of Acts. So if you got your Bible, I hope you do. Acts chapter 20 is where we're going to be. Acts chapter 20. What we want to do is, one, as a church, we want to try to figure it out faster. I believe the roadmap to getting us out of the woods in these days lies in the book of Acts. And here's what I want to do tonight. And we're going to do more of this as we go. And so this won't be the last time. 
But I want to be careful that we don't walk through the book of Acts and we preach some sermons and we make some points and isn't this great? And then we move on with our life and fail to learn the lesson, have it go deep into our bones, what God has here for us as to how we should live. I think there is a missiological map here in this book for how to live in these days, and I think many churches are missing it. So here's what I want to explain. Let's take a look at evangelicalism. And I explained this uh, last week, and I want to do a little better job of it so as for it to make sense, because we're not figuring out fast enough where we're at in this cultural moment. And so I want to help explain this to you to help speed up your theological oodaloo. Positive world evangelicalism. Evangelicalism, the word started beginning to use in the late 40s, early 50s, to explain uh, kind of non-mainline uh, Christians that had a value around the, the word of God and the divinity of Jesus and the supremacy of Christ as the only way to salvation and the nature of church as being a missiological instrument by which the kingdom of God is brought uh, uh, on the earth. And so for, for many, if not most of you, evangelicalism has kind of defined not mainline Christianity, not, not kind of Eastern Orthodoxy, but kind of your, your Christian, American Christian experience. And, and, and here's what's true about evangelicalism in America. In the, there was a positive world season or era or epoch. And this positive world, this is taken from an article written by uh, uh, Aaron Wren. He's a really, really helpful thinker. Uh, uh, and he's, 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 a, he's a writer and author, uh, cultural commentator. And, and he had an article that I'm taking uh, these, these concepts or these dates from, I should say, to give him credit. And it's been very help, helpful, uh, a very helpful taxonomy or categories for myself to think of in terms of where we're at. First, he, he's, he calls positive world, 1950 to 1994. And, and the defining marks of positive world was, and this, these are just my examples now, things like under God. Where does that phrase come from that you recognize? One nation, under God, indivisible, liberty, justice for all. What's that called? Pledge of Allegiance. It was not in there until Eisenhower put it in 1952, I think. 52 or 53, somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, we should add under God in there. So the president thought it was important enough to add under God into the Pledge of Allegiance that was said all over through our government schools. Prayer in government schools. We're going to pray before class. We're going to pray at commencement. We're going to pray at football games, this and that. Uh, these are defined marks of evangelicalism in positive world. How about public displays of the Ten Commandments? They're, they're at courthouses. They're at schools. They're everywhere. Ten Commandments are a good thing. These, these, are, these, are, these are culturally agreed upon boundaries that we all agree to, moral standards we should live inside of, and the entertainment aligned with values. By and large, entertainment aligned with values. Uh, you know, if you look at entertainment in the 40s and 50s, uh, you know, you got Leave it to Beaver, you got, I mean, you know, Dick Van Dyke, um, you know, uh, well, Andy Griffin show, my kids. I mean, it's like, by and large, like, like, you know, family values were being embodied and encouraged and celebrated, uh, by and large, in the entertainment industry. And to step out of that path to, like, have a TV show or a song that didn't line with, with, with kind of Judeo-Christian moral values was to get yourself canceled, uh, and you, you, you wouldn't get anywhere. The missiological strategy was uh, culture war and secret sensitive. So this is like the um, James Dobson, Jerry Falwell, Liberty University, uh, moral majority, that kind of thing. And then the secret sensitive movement kind of began being born out of this because, as I said last Sunday, I think it was 1950-51, marked the highest amount of uh, evangelical attendance of church, uh, Protestant church attendance in U.S. history that we, that, that, as we've been keeping track of these things. And so the assumption from churches was everyone's seeking 
Everyone's seeking. So what we need to do is we need to be sensitive to those who are seeking and make it more easier or maybe more comfortable for them to come into our church. We were working from kind of similar cultural context and background and reference points. Most folks have been to church or knew the story of Moses. Or when you say the Red Sea moment, they understand what that, that means as opposed to today when like no one knows what that means. And so this was kind of the strategy. 60s, of course, you have the 50s, you have the introduction of birth control. 60s, it starts to take hold. That kind of burrs the sexual revolution that moves into like the hippie area of the 70s. And obviously, there's lots of political uh, pressure happening, uh, unpopular war in Vietnam, um, uh, corruption happening in in government ways that we hadn't seen before publicly, uh, entertainment pushing the line on things. And so there's lots of, there's lots of, Lots of elements happening here in this positive world. But even during the sexual revolution in, in the hippie era of the 70s, by and large, if, to be a Christian came with political, social capital. Can we agree on that? We can nod our heads. We can agree on that. Like, there wasn't a huge social cost to being a Christian. In fact, you couldn't, you couldn't run for office unless you identified with a Protestant church or a very conservative Catholic church. That, that's positive world. That all ended in about 1994, according to Ren's study. 1994, we transitioned to uh, what he calls neutral world. And this, this was a 20-year period. And the defining uh, marks of this was we went from under God to no God. So we're not going like, to be aggressively anti-God. We're going to be neutral. We're just, we're just gonna, not going to talk about God. Uh, remove all public vestiges of Christianity. So we're taking down the Ten Commandments. We're removing prayer in schools. We're kind of doing these kind of things, just kind of pull out. But we're still neutral, which we know is a myth. We're, we're still neutral. We're not antagonistic. We're just saying that in a free society, we shouldn't shove our ideas of morality or religion on people who don't want it. So we're, we're going to be neutral. And so the, big, the pulling back of, of, of um, Christian moral values being represented in the public square, you have the rise of, of, of postmodern thought. Essentially, there are no absolutes. There is no objective reality and truth outside myself. The rise of the modern self and the rise of the postmodern thought, um, everything is subjective to what I think, my experience, my perspective, that trumps all. And of course, that's a self-defeating argument, but it took root and off we went. And the entertainment mocks Christian values. So entertainment was aligning with Christian values. Now in this neutral world, entertainment is mocking Christian values. And you look at like late 80s, early 90s, in the 90s, you have a huge swing in entertainment where you have um, shows like Friends, like wildly popular, even among people today, which always shocks me because that show did more to normalize sexual perversion than almost any other entertainment show in our country. It made it hip and funny to uh, engage in, in sex outside of marriage, pornography with people that were your best friends, in and out of relationships. It just totally mocked in any sort of like... Uh, biblical reality relationships, what happens when you have sex with people. You, you can't keep being friends with them and living together, and it's gonna, it, it, it doesn't work that way. But they, So you saw all the evil of, 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 of sex outside God's design without any of the consequences, and they laughed at it made it a, a multi... It was a million-dollar an episode uh, entertainment phenomenon. You have Will and Grace that's normalizing homosexuality. And so, so we're going from, from entertainment aligning with moral values to entertainment mocking moral values. And what's interesting is is when you look at like how, how societies change, right? Entertainment, philosophy, uh, art, always out in front of politics. And so you, 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 have, you have the uh, normalizing of, of, of homosexuality and homosexual activity in um, mainstream entertainment. And what's going to come quickly after that 20 years later is the codifying of that in our 
uh, rule of law with Obergefell in 2014. So the missional strategy in the neutral world was cultural engagement. Hey, people aren't uh, coming to our churches as much anymore because uh, uh, we've kind of unmoored ourselves from the importance of religiosity so, or, or religion in, in life. So we need to go out to them and we need to engage this. This is like the missional movement. This is that kind of, we need to go out and engage the culture and we need to go become teachers and go be a part of the institution and go inside the institution and work for the good of the city and turn it uh, around from the inside out. Cultural engagement, cultural engagement, cultural engagement. Newsflash, how did it work for us? Well, it brought us <clears throat> the negative world. The negative world now, uh, he, he, no, he notates it beginning in around 2014. A lot of interesting things happened in 2014. Um, a lot of things are happening in, in the ecclesiological world. Some of the loudest, most prophetic biblical voices were being uh, falsely accused, shot at, and torn down. 2014, you have um, Ferguson. And the race riots of Ferguson, remember that? Uh, a black guy, high on drugs, just robbed a convenience store, stopped by a cop, walks up to his window, punches the cop, reaches in, tries to grab his gun, and in self-defense, the cop uh, gets his gun out, shoots him, and, then, and gets him under arrest, and that cop had to go into hiding for six months? Are, anybody remembering this? Ferguson? Okay. That happened in 2014. Boom, race riots uh, uh, of the summer of 2014. 2014, we had, you have the Obergefell ruling where uh, homosexuality and the right for a man to marry a man is now codified into law by the Supreme Court. And that's when he notes we went from neutral world to negative world. So defining marks, unprecedented social cost for following Jesus. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus now, increasing unprecedented cost at your employment, at where you work. If you work for uh, a big corporation, if you work for T-Mobile, or you work for Apple, or you work for Johnson & Johnson, or you work for any of these major national companies, you're going to be asked to shut up about your Christianity and, and <clears throat> take it and swallow and embrace the new religion of our culture, the, the, the DEI culture. Irreconcilable definitions of justice, the rise of social justice, the rise of the defining mark of the, of the modern day church and most mainline denominations is to bring reconciliation to each other on a horizontal level without acknowledging our need for um, Horizontal, a vertical reconciliation between God and man. So it's, uh, you know, apologize to, you know, the, the hashtag Me Too culture and cancel culture, and you just apologize endlessly to other people. And if I think you've done me wrong, I'm, I'm going to demand you apologize to me, and I'm going to, I'm going to just ruin you until, until you do. And so all these weird videos of like white pastors apologizing to black people for things that happened 300 years ago, and all these kind of weird cultural moments, right? Where we're like, what is happening here? This, 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 this is different. Well, this is, we're, we're, we're redefining uh, definitions of, of justice. And what happens is, you know, go woke, uh, go broke in, 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 the, in the corporate world is a kind of phrase going around. Well, go woke, go dead is what's happened in our modern day churches, as Adam so uh, poignantly, poignantly pointed out this week, is when a church goes woke, a church is, is emphasizing social justice on a human level of, over and above cosmic justice between God and man. So the, the biggest problem is, is, is what's been done to you in your environment or your circumstances as a victim. And so you need to, you need to, you need to demand justice on, on a man level. And you're completely ignoring the reality that until the, the cosmic justice scenario is, is dealt with, until you are, are made right with God and your relationship with God, nothing on earth is going to, is, is, is going to go well. 
And so we have irreconcilable definitions of justice between the Word of God and the modern-day church. And here's the observation that that Pastor Adam made that that was so profound, and I won't do it justice. But what he said was, the reason that woke churches die is because they stop emphasizing repentance before God and start emphasizing repentance between man. The subtle message is you don't need God. If you don't need God, guess what you don't need along with it? Church. And then you take a step further, and church is actually the problem, and, and church is an oppressive authority structure, and church is a place where, where white men that want power go to abuse other people. And so it's like, if you don't need God, and church is an abusive power structure, guess what people stop doing? <laughs> Going to church. So woke churches die. Conflicting definitions of truth, goodness, and beauty. And I'm just whizzing over the... the, the, the there's, there's a lot to dive into here that I'm skipping over. But when you think about the definition of truth, what it is and who gets to define it, the definition of goodness, what is actually good, and the definition of what is beautiful in art, in culture, in entertainment, everything is upside down. The, the prophet Isaiah said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's where we live today. Everything that is evil is celebrated as good, and all that is good is celebrated as, as evil. And then, and then with that comes corruption, evil, and um, perversion that's normalized. We don't even have an expectation for politicians to be honest anymore. We don't even have expectations for entertainment to be uh, 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 moral anymore. In fact, if it is, it's kind of like, wow, it's a shocking outlier. Because evil and perversion and corruption have been normalized in this negative world culture. Here's the interesting thing that this very intelligent culture observer pointed out in this article he wrote last year, is the church has no missiological strategy for this age yet. They haven't figured out what to do. They're just getting their butts kicked, which is why we all need to what? Figure it out faster. We all need to figure it out faster. So we have pastors calling us and going like, hey, like, what's happening up there? And we're like, church is growing and folks are getting baptized and lives are being changed. And they're like, what are you doing? And we're like, I don't know, what are you doing, (laughs) you know? And so we've been like reflecting on like, well, what are we doing? And I think there's a roadmap in the book of Acts for how to live in negative world culture. Because here's the thing. If you think about the book of Acts, was the book of Acts written to a church that was in a positive world, neutral world, or negative world? I think, you came to hear what I think, right? <laughs> I think, I think it was Christians, the church was born in, in neutral world right. Meaning Judaism was functioning in Rome. They, they were allowed to have synagogues. They were allowed to meet and worship. They, they weren't being like actively hated and persecuted. They were, they were being allowed to go about their thing. And then the church explodes and the church blows up both the Roman culture and the Jewish religious moralism of their day. And that moves the church into an era of negative world to the point where Paul, at the end of this book, spoiler alert, doesn't make it out alive. I think we could all call that negative world, don't you think? So here's what's interesting. While we are in current negative world reality, it's not yet to the point where they're murdering us and putting us in jail. But there are stages to negative world. Negative world starts uh, sociologically. It starts in the arts. It starts in entertainment. And then it moves down the line of culture. It moves into business. It moves, well, the order is actually, I think, I think entertainment and then academia. And so you have all, all of the... Uh, 
when all the people came off of acid trips in the 70s, you know where they went? Into academia. And now they're in academia teaching all, all, all the kids who are now running corporate America. And so, so you, have, you have entertainment, and then you have academia, and then you have business, and then, and then that is what makes up culture, and guess what falls next? Politics, rule of law, legislation, government power. And so I think we are on the road. You're like, why did I come out in the snow to hear this message? This is so depressing. Well, hang with me. I think we are on our way toward a negative world in which Paul doesn't make it out alive, and neither do we, unless there can be reformation in the church and the nation that, that we call home. So we're already seeing the negative world uh, sociologically. We're seeing it socially, culturally, in the entertainment world. We're seeing it happen in academia. We're seeing, I, mean, I mean, progressives have all the money. They got all the big businesses. Look at the stats. It's all there. And the, the, the last thing to hold is politics. And, and one wrong election and one wrong guy here and there, and boom, entire worlds can change in how we live. And so, yes, we need men and women in politics. Yes, we need men and women fighting for the, um, the vestiges of uh, Christianity and, and, and morality and righteousness. Yes, yes, a thousand yeses and amen. And we need to go back upstream and start working at the fountainhead of all these changes, which we believe is our individuals, marriages, and families. That's above entertainment and culture and business. Loving individuals and building and strengthening marriages and families seeing them redeemed one by one by Jesus' power for Jesus' sake. Amen? Here's what's interesting. If the church doesn't figure out where they are, they will use neutral world or positive world tactics in a negative world reality. So, so, so think about it. Um, uh, it, it. I don't know if I want to go here yet. Let's think about this. A lot of pastors I know have mentors that were raised in positive world, did ministry in neutral world, and then mentored the pastors my age who are now living in a negative world. And so the reality is, while, while many of our older mentors are, are, are wonderful men and godly men that we, I love dearly, if they haven't remained humble and attentive to the culture, their tactics are simply outdated. And that's not, that's not saying in a negative sense to them. It's simply saying that, that the world that you grew up in is so radically different from the world that I am ministering in that the tactic, tactics don't translate. So when I say negative world, does this resonate with any of your guys' experience in the current world you live in? Yeah, it's everywhere you go. And, and here's what happens. is you go out in that negative world, and, and you run into it, and, and here's the cycle that you get put into that I want to just identify for you. The first is disbelief. You're like, why are they blogging about me? Why are they complaining to me at HR? Why are they not inviting me to uh, dinner? Why are they, you know, you, whatever your experience is with this negative attack and this negative world, you're, you're like, you're like I'm, I'm the good guy. I'm the, the, the good, honest, family values, work hard, integrity guy or gal. Well, why... Would they not like me? They don't like you because they hate you. You got to understand, in, in, a, in a negative world reality, the unprecedented social cost, right? There's, there's an unprecedented hostility toward Christianity and the values they represent because they come from the man Jesus Christ. And there's now an open hostility against Jesus and all who represent him. So, so the first thing that happens to you is disbelief. Like, what's going on here? Because you're still working on a neutral, positive world reality. 
Then what happens is you probably have some form of frustration. This isn't fair. I'm not the enemy. What the heck's going on? Anybody had this? What, what, what do you mean I got to get a vaccination? What do you mean I got to wear a mask to keep my job? This is nuts. I'm a good guy. I'm using rational common sense. Why are you putting so much pressure on me to act outside of my values that actually benefit this company if you just let me live them out? Is this, anybody recognizing this? Okay. Then <clears throat> your frustration becomes anger. They have no right to do that. And, and, and you're, you're into this cycle now, right? Now, up to this point, there's been no sin involved. I mean, there could be, but, 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 but not technically. Disbelief, this is weird. Frustration, what the heck? Anger, who do you think you are? Now, let's stop right there. You can be righteously angry or unrighteously angry. So this is where now a decision tree comes. You get on, as I told staff on Tuesday, you get on a roundabout. You can make a decision. And, and here when actually roundabouts are, are not round, if you haven't noticed. As Adam said, they're round about. <laughs> Oblong. Local joke. Anyways. Now you have a choice to make. You can, and the first choice is you can take the flesh exit. Okay? And the flesh, the flesh exit in response to pressure in negative world after you've gone through disbelief, frustration, and anger, the flesh exit can take you down a road of um, um, despair, anxiety, fear, that then can result in you being a coward because you're going to agree to be quiet about what you know to be true. Or you could get prideful and go vigilante. See the extremes? That's the flesh route. Or you can take the spirit exit ramp where you stop, pause, pray, put your head and heart into the word of God, and you draw courage and hope, and you, be, you get clear on the truth, and you stand courageously, you speak out boldly, you maintain righteousness, you, you cling to the truth, you refuse to cower and to go quietly into the night, but you, you contend for the truth, you don't get cantankerous, you don't get critical, but you, you godly, humble, unmoving, unwavering, holding the line, declaring the truth, speaking the truth, living the truth. But if you're not thinking about this, you'll go through the cycle of dis- disbelief, frustration, anger, and then, and, and then you can go off the flesh track, and you, you may be technically right, but you're still really wrong in how you're responding. So this is then brings us to what I talked about last week, and I breezed over it, and this is what my kids didn't understand. What's the missiological plan in negative world reality, we have to both contend and contextualize the truth. And, and here's what I mean when I say that. We get to Acts 20. Big, long introduction. We get to Acts 20. i got four minutes left. This will be fun. We get to Acts 20, and in Acts 20, Paul says these words that we glossed over last week that I want you to soak with tonight. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I have taught you publicly and from house to house. And, and I made the observation last week, the only reason Paul would say that I haven't hesitated is if telling them what was helpful came with a cost. And so he's saying, hey, I didn't hesitate. I didn't cower. I didn't go quietly in the night. I contended for the truth by telling you what you needed to hear, not what you wanted to hear, because what you needed to hear was the gospel, even though it wasn't popular in the in, in, 
in the culture that I was speaking it into. I did not hesitate to speak to you what you needed to hear. Verse 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. That is a mind-blowing verse if you have any awareness of conversations going on among churches and pastors in relationship to how to speak the truth to culture today. Because contending and contextualizing get pit against each other. We don't want to contend so that we make people angry and not like us and they turn us off. So we need to contextualize the gospel in order to make it palatable to receive. To which we say that's a distortion of Paul's contending and contextualizing continuum that he gives us as a way in which to think about these things. Because contending and contextualizing are both to be anchored in one thing, and that is what? The truth. So the sole reason we contextualize the truth is so that we can contend for it. In other words, we're attempting to make the truth intelligible, not palatable. Very different realities. If you want to make the truth palatable in negative world reality, guess what you're going to have to do? Change and pervert the truth. So if your goal is to make it palatable, you'll change it. If the goal is to make it intelligible, you'll clarify it. And then what happens is in clarifying the truth in relationship to race, abuse, sexuality, gender, marriage, all the hot button issues of the day, you will get shot at, maligned, smeared, lied about, canceled, fired, you name it. And so there's a new cost that is coming with contending. And so then what pastors and churches do is they use contextualizing as an excuse to cover their cowardiceness. Well, we need to be a little more careful how we say things, because if we offend people, then they won't listen to us and we'll lose a hearing and then we can't do ministry with them. No, 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 no. Pastors need to remember that more people walked away from Jesus than followed him. And if pastors want to have a higher retention in their preaching than Jesus did, they're simply not following the way of their master. And people walked away from Jesus in droves, not because they couldn't understand what he was saying, but precisely because they knew exactly what he was saying. They understood exactly the implications of what he was saying, is that he is holy, and they are sinful, and they must repent or be judged. And they're like, yeah, screw you, we're out. And so what fascinates me about this one verse in Acts 20 that gives us, I think, a roadmap to how to navigate the negative world reality is that Paul said he preached both to Jews and Greeks two different races, two radically different cultures, two radically different sets of traditions, two radically different sets of, of unique cultural idolatries, two different languages, two completely different people groups, one and the same message. Look, I preach to both Jews and Greeks that they must all turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, I approached multi-complex mission fields with one clear non-woke message. Repent to God, be made right with God, and then from that place of rightness before God, begin working out your earthly relationships. It's profound. It's a profound missiological map for the church in our day and age. Now, when I say contend, I, I get that from... Uh, oh, I'm going to flip this here. When I say contend, I get this from Jude 13. 
or excuse me, Jude 1, 3, where, where Paul says, I'm writing now to urge you to contend for the faith that was handed down once to the saints. And then I get contextually should be flipped from 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul says, I became all things to all men that by all means I might win how many? Some. Some. So Paul was endeavoring to reach everyone he was around with the singular message of the good news of the gospel. And then here are some texts for you to consider. Acts 2 because we're sitting back and looking at the whole picture of the book of Acts, right? In Acts 2, you have Peter before the, 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 this raving crowd. And you remember what he tells them? You murdered Jesus. Repent, believe, and be baptized. And then you have Paul in the Oropagus in, in Acts 17. And Paul's doing what? He's talking conversationally. He's quoting to them their poets. He's dialoguing with them about the, the having a conversation about the day. And never once does he talk about the fact that they murdered Jesus and they, sh they should repent. He he's having a winsome, sophisticated conversation with them in a contextualized way. And so what people do is, that, see, Paul did it here and Paul did it here. So, and to which I say, let's look at the results. Because what Paul wrote in his epistles was, was divinely inspired, prescriptive principles of God's word. What Luke is recording in Acts is a divinely inspired accounting of the description of what the apostles were doing, meaning they were learning as they went too. And here's what I think happened. At the end of Acts 17, how many, how many people got saved? Hardly any. Like not many, like maybe none. A few said, we'd like to hear you on this matter some more sometime. I think Paul looked back on Peter, who was simple, and himself, who was sophisticated, and thought, hmm, he yelled, pointed his finger, accused him of murdering Jesus, called them to repent before God, and 3,000 people got saved, and the church was birthed. I went the sophisticated contextual route and, and got all fancy in my conversations, never once mentioned repentance, and nobody got saved. I think Paul was comparing missiological strategies, and he changed his tune. Because you get to 1 Corinthians 2, and what does Paul say? We do not come any longer with wise and persuasive words, but rather with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. We preach Christ and Christ crucified, and Christ crucified alone. We're done quoting the poets. We're done doing the fancy, uh, you know, woohoo, apologetic. We're just going right to the cross. And then you get to decide how you want to respond. Here's what's crazy. Between Acts 17, where Paul was doing the fancy contextualized, quote all their poets thing, and Acts 20, where he says, I talked to the Greeks about repenting and turning to Jesus. You know how much time passed? About... 15 minutes if you read it, but about three years in Paul's life. Paul spent three years in Ephesus going, you know what? I think the poet route isn't working here. We're just going to go cross in repentance. And he's changing his missiological tactics to fit the world that he's doing ministry in that's increasingly becoming negative. So to land the plane quickly, what's the miss missiological plan in negative world reality? This is what I want us to start thinking more about as a church family. I want us to increase our missiological IQ and intelligence and relationship to what it means to be Bible-believing, spirit-filled 
Jesus-following, gospel-proclaiming kingdom builders in America in 2024. Because, friends, I'm telling you, we haven't seen anything yet. We haven't. And, and so, so there's a burden from the elders to prepare us for this so that, that the enemy will stop interrupting our oodle loop and up, 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 and we can act decisively so as to win kingdom battles. So number one, the church needs to have a, a, a conviction to set forth the truth plainly. I preach to both Jews and Greeks, repent to God, believe in Jesus. I think we need to stop trying to be so sophisticated and be a little more simple. We need to stop making complicated what God has made plain. Repent, believe in Jesus, be baptized. Second, I think we need to live in such a way as to demonstrate the Spirit's power. We came now with wise and persuasive words. This is why we want to preach the Word of God. That's where the power is. We want to have experiences of power in worship and prayer, and then we want to live in community where we're growing and changing because the, the, the inarguable apologetic for the reality of Jesus Christ is a changed life. You can't argue with a changed life. And we want to see God change more people's lives as we live together in community as a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Thirdly, we need to boldly proclaim the truth. Paul says, I have not hesitated. Which means, and this is some of Adam's stuff he uses in his cultural Marxism class, we need to reverse the silent spiral and curb the social cost. You know the silent spiral, right? The historians talk about. The silent spiral is, as an increased cost for speaking out the truth, as, as the cost increases for speaking out the truth, less people talk. And less people talk, the higher the cost. Does that make sense? So it used to be 100 people spoke out, and they all got blasted. And 50 of them learned their lesson. And, and, and then to make sure 100 people don't speak out again, the social cost goes up. And next time, only 50 people speak out. And now there's less people to, to hit with a, with a bat. And so now the full force of culture hits those 50 people, and 30 of those people learn their lesson. And the next time, only 20 speak up. And so, and so the, the silent spiral to pretty soon, there's only a few people speaking up with the cost increasingly scaling. Does this make sense? As opposed to the more people who speak up, that actually curbs the social cost because more people are boldly standing and saying, hey, this is insane. So, like, two years ago, you, you want to you stand against some, some, the fact that it's crazy and insane to hide kids from parents and chemically castrate them and surgically alter their life forever? I mean, I mean that was the way to get, I mean, you get canceled for sure. And we've been saying it, and we're going to keep saying it, and we're going to say it louder and louder and louder. And guess what? There are some more voices speaking up. And the more voices speak up to defend the innocent. I saw a great meme, uh, a meme this week. It was a video. It was a five-year-old kid. And, it's in, in, in a t- uh, and, and there's a, he's sitting across the desk from a guy. And the guy says, okay, you got two decisions. Do you want this $10,000? And he slides cash across the table. You know where this is going, right? Or would you like these two Oreos? And the kid goes, I, I want the Oreos. He's like, no, no, this is $10,000 in cash. He's like, yeah, yeah, I want the Oreos. Super cute. The heading over the video, this is why kids should not be allowed to choose their gender. Right? So, more people speaking up boldly, that's insane. The emperor's naked, and I'm not going to pretend he's not naked anymore. Because to be silent in the face of lies is to be permissive to the lie 
and then to participate in it with your silence, which then perpetuates that lie and causes it to grow. Fourthly, we need to model a clear and compelling vision of truth, goodness, and beauty, family capital of the world. We want to build the family capital of the world so people can come and see the beauty and the goodness of God's truth on display in the lives of changed and redeemed people. Amen? Amen. That's what we want to do. And lastly, number five, we need to, and this will be maybe the most controversial, leave the corrupt institutions and build kingdom gardens as alternatives. And that's Garden City Academy. We have to figure it out faster that many of the institutions that we're participating in, funding, even being a part of, they are gone. They're gone. And you cannot argue from the book of Acts that God's missiological tactic for his people is to go into the broken systems and undo them from positions of power and influence. Never once do we see that happening in the book of Acts. We see Jesus walking outside in parallel to those broken, corrupt institutions, preaching the truth and calling people out of them to build something more beautiful and better. So Matthew, the tax collector, gets saved. Awesome, right? Guess what he stopped doing? Collecting taxes for Rome from the Jews. We don't have any accounts of people getting saved, going back into the Roman institution and then working for change there. And as they left the Roman institution, the Roman government fell, not because they were working for a change without, but because I believe Jesus called his disciples out and they built something more beautiful and compelling. So think about, think about negative, positive, public, or excuse me, public, uh, negative, neutral, positive realities for, uh, for a moment, in, in my, my last analogy here, in relationship to government schools. So Christians go along with the establishment of state-funded government schools. And here's how they missed it. A jurisdictional line was blurred in that moment. And there were prophets standing up like Jake Gresham Machen going, this is crazy, this is where this is going to go. And they were blown off mostly as largely as conspiratorial, uh, uh, you know, wild-haired, beetle-eating prophets. And when you read... Machen's concerns about where it would go, it's like he's reading our mail in 2024. And here's what happened. Jurisdictional lines in relationship to children and education were blurred, and the responsibility that God designed for the jurisdiction of the family was given to the state because it was easier. It was easier, it was more convenient, there's more resources there, and we didn't catch it because we were living in a positive world reality. The principals are Christian, the teachers are Christians, the coaches are Christians. Heck, we're praying before class. This is, this is great. So the jurisdictional lines got violated, but it was palatable because it wasn't offensive yet to our, our Christian sensibilities. But here's the dirty little secret that nobody talks about. I think one of the most destructive, uh, and this is going to sound terrible, corrupt, evil, institutes of our day hurting us more than anything else is that thing called the government schools that we fund more than half of our tax dollars uh, 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 statewide and nationally. Here's what no one's talking about. It's the Protestant church that built that crazy thing. You know why Catholic churches or schools exist? 
Because in the 60s, the, the Catholics were like, hey, the government schools are practically Protestant indoctrination centers. We need to have our own schools. And so they started Catholic schools in response to how Protestant the, the government schools were. But you can't violate God's laws for long before it comes back. And so what happened at Disney happened with government schools. Disney, a great, a, a wonderfully conservative, family-oriented man, builds this massive structure and because progressives don't build things, they just tear things down like a, like a parasite. They latch onto it, take it over the top, and then they wield the entire superstructure of Disney for their evil purposes. Same thing happened with government schools. Christians built it. We built that crazy thing. And then they got taken over from the top, and the whole infrastructure we spent seven years building has been now weaponized against children and families in the values that we hold dear as Christians. We got to figure it out faster. We got to we got to get our, our theological and missiological loop moving quicker here because we're getting our butts kicked. And this thing right here, leave the corrupt institution, and build kingdom gardens. That's not cranking angry. I think I think it's a biblical approach to where we're at. And the quicker we figure that out, the faster, more effective the kingdom of God I think we'll be able to build. Hence the family capital of the world. Hence Garden City Academy. These are exciting days to be alive. I'll end with this. God does his best work in the darkest times. And I'm totally prepared not to make it to a natural death. And I'm excited to work hard to turn the tide between now and then. Thanks be to God. So Father in heaven, as we consider Paul in the book of Acts and how you would call us to live, give us discernment, Father. Give us wisdom. Give us courage. Give us faith. Give us grace. Give us patience. Give us wisdom to know how to live. We have the lives that we've built. We have this moment that we're in, and things are changing so quickly, and it can be frustrating and angering. Lord, give us your Spirit's power in that moment of decision to not go off the flesh road, but to continue walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be people found setting forth the truth plainly, boldly proclaiming the word of God, demonstrating the power of the Holy Spirit, modeling and compelling, modeling a clear, rather, and compelling vision of a life living out truth, goodness, and beauty, and then endeavoring to, with our days, build better and more beautiful gardens to invite people into to experience the presence of God. We ask for your help in these days. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this message today. If you did, there's a couple things I'd love for you to do. First, like and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. That way, the most recent message from Grace City will always be waiting for you at the top of your feed. Secondly, if this ministry has encouraged you and you'd like to help us reach more folks, you can do so by giving a gift to our ministry so we can continue making these resources available for free. Just go to gracecitychurch.com give. Thanks for listening. God bless.